0: The path of salvation history is a long and winding one. There have been torturous turns, there have been treacherous stretches, and dark haunted valleys through which God's people have had to pass. It all began a very long time ago when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. On that day, mankind was plunged into darkness, lost, blind, separated from God. But in that pitch darkness, as Adam and Eve hid from God, God, as it were, lit one star in the dark sky. He promised to send a deliverer to crush Satan's head someday. And Adam and Eve stepped out in faith on the dark, treacherous path, and they followed in the dim light of that hazy promise. But this was to be a very, very long journey. And Adam and Eve died without ever meeting that deliverer in this world. But the divine promises continued, and with each promise it was as if God lit another star in the sky to light the path a little bit more. Prophet after prophet pointed the way down through the centuries proclaiming to God's people that the deliverer from sin would come. The dark sky was increasingly illumined by further prophecies of Messiah's birth and lineage, prophecies of His healing powers, prophecies of His torturous death, prophecies of His resurrection, prophecies of His victorious session at God's right hand. The path was still dark, but it was getting brighter. Is there a possibility? <laughs> I, I, I really lost everybody's attention here. There's something beeping. Maybe it's in an office or something. Um, I, we've, I've just, I'm getting nobody here, so <laughs> I want you to come back. And uh, sometimes there's beepers that go off in our house in various rooms, and everybody thinks somebody else has it. But if that's you, we'll all close our eyes and let you take care of it. Maybe it's somewhere up on top or somewhere, but I've lost the whole crew here. Everybody's looking around wondering what's going on. Uh, Back to it, and I'll ignore it from here just in case uh, something could be stopped. But the prophecies of His healing powers and of His torturous death and of His resurrection continued to come. Prophecies of His victorious session at God's right hand. The sky just continued to be lighted by these stars, these prophecies of Christ's coming. Finally, the road led to the edge of a beautiful valley, and it stopped. For 400 years, there were no more stars lit in the night sky. It was a dramatic pause, preparing God's people to discern what was to come. Then suddenly the glow of the rising sun cast a faint light across the landscape, revealing a major turn in the path. Elizabeth's unborn baby leaped in the womb. Mary marveled and yielded. Zachariah went speechless. And suddenly the sun burst forth and lit a new day. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The long prophesied son of David had come and set to, to set his people free. And slowly the sun rose on a glorious day. Messiah lit the world. His glory was seen and the Redeemer had come. Then a dark cloud rapidly, eerily shrouded the sun. and the path of redemption was plunged again into darkness. For parts of three days, Jesus of Nazareth lay dead, and all hope was lost. But then the sun burned through that dark cloud of death and despair. Jesus was alive again. And salvation history entered a new and glorious day of light. All the prophecies had come together. Everything was beginning to make sense. The whole thing had been strung together by God as pearls on a string. The stars had lit the sky and now the sun revealed a new world. Jesus was alive. And the disciples scrambled back onto the path with gleeful astonishment. We find two of these disciples tripping through the dark on a harrowing journey back to Jerusalem, scrambling back on the path to tell the others that Jesus had appeared to them, that Jesus had talked with them on the road and opened their eyes to the Scriptures and vanished from their sight. He was alive. They simply had to tell the others the thrilling news. In fact, the news preceded them. We come to 24 and verse 33 of, chapter, of Luke, chapter 24, verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Jesus demonstrates here his life, his physical resurrection. He offers a physical demonstration of his appearance, first of all, by simply standing before them in physical form. We ask, is this a seance? Are they calling up Jesus' spirit from the dead? No, Jesus' appearance is unsolicited. It is unexpected. They are startled. And in their fear, they conclude, Jesus' disembodied spirit stands before them. Jesus has some very important work to do at this point. It is vital that He convince them of His physical life. That he, in fact, is alive in every sense of the word. He does so, first of all, by showing them his physical body and particularly his wounds. Verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Jesus asked some hard questions, didn't he? It, It would seem pretty obvious as to why they were troubled and had doubts in their minds. They knew he was dead and here he stands before them. But he's helping them to see there's no reason to be afraid. I stand here before you, and he says, verse 39, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. They were troubled. They were, the word means they were agitated, shaken, stirred, unsettled. Jesus here is not looking for information, he's looking to instruct them, but he shows them unimpeachable evidence. He says, you can touch me, you can't touch a ghost. He stands before them in bodily form and it was him. His body still bore the marks of nails in his wrists and feet. John adds that he also showed to them the wound in his side. We sung of that, if you caught that earlier today. I don't know that that's true. I would assume that it is, as the songwriter put it, that his wounds will be evidenced throughout all eternity. It's really a remarkable thought, isn't it? Why would a resurrection body not have the wounds gone? We don't know the answer to that. If perhaps the marks of persecution are what is retained by the resurrection body as a crown of glory. Or, at least in this case, it is just a simple means of identification. We don't know a lot about the resurrection body, but for some reason, Jesus' wounds are still there. In His wrists, in His feet, in His side, they can see the wounds. It's very clear that it's Him. And He wants to demonstrate very clearly so that they understand. That it is him. They see him, they touch him, but it's so hard to process. Verse 40 When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have something here to eat? It's not so much doubt that paralyzes them now as a paralysis of stunned joy. Their hearts are so filled with wonder, they're not sure they dare believe. But they must, they must believe. So Jesus continues to demonstrate the point by eating in front of them. A piece of broiled fish. Uh, Some translations add a honeycomb, which is is fairly evidently a, a, a scribal addition, but perhaps something that he did, in fact, do. The point is that he eats. Ghosts don't eat. He's there in physical form. I'd like us to stop for a moment and think, as we come to the end of verse 43. As He takes the food and eats it in their presence and demonstrates to them that He is, in fact, in physical form. This is vital. Jesus labors to prove this point. He shows up to them. He says, Here are my wounds. He says, You can touch my body. Let me eat for you. He's working hard to demonstrate, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a disembodied spirit. I am, in fact, alive physically a Christian who denies the resurrection of Jesus physical body is not really a Christian Is not a person who thinks the way Jesus thought and not a person in touch with reality Jesus did all that he could do to demonstrate to them that he was physically alive Jesus did not simply rise in spirit Jesus rose bodily from the grave, and that is what true Christianity believes. That is what the Apostle Paul believed when he said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Eden Baptist Church gathers on the first day of every week to bear witness to the reality that Jesus Christ is alive in bodily form. That's why we're here. And without it, we have no reason to gather as his people. You've maybe seen a cliff climber, or someone who repels off a tall cliff. I had some time ago an opportunity to be on the north shore and to see some young men doing that as they went down this, this sheer cliff high above the waterfront. You know, in that whole thing, just rest. Really, on the hooks. I know there's words for all this stuff, but uh, the, the hooks that go in. I mean, the rope can be good. And the rope can be, uh, you, you, could, you could pull a truck with the rope, that's fine. But if that hook gives loose, you're done. Everything rests on that hook. Everything rests in the New Testament upon the hook of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It all rests on that. It all hangs on that. Without that, we have absolutely nothing. Isn't that kind of a weak hook? When you think about it, we're supposed to trust the experience of a few worn-out disciples, a few very emotional disciples who lived 2,000 years ago. There's no cameras. There's no video footage of Jesus there's nothing there but the word of these people, long gone. Isn't that a pretty tenuous hook on which to hang your whole eternal destiny? You know, in one sense it is. The evidence is solid. It's as good evidence as we have for the existence of all kinds of people historically. But I think God himself knows that that hook would be a little too weak to rest at all right there. He goes back to the prophets who hung those prophetic stars in the sky to illumine the way to show that all of this was prophesied. So Jesus demonstrates his resurrection by appearing to His disciples, but He also offers biblical demonstration of the reality of His resurrection. This is crucial. And on this we hang our hope and our faith. Verse 44, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms. This is a crucial statement on Christ's part. Everything had to be fulfilled. It is not merely that you can touch my body and see my wounds. Clearly for you this experience is all that is necessary. I'm not a ghost. You know that I am here with you physically. But let's remember, God my Father has been preparing salvation history one step at a time for these very events. This has not happened in a corner. Before Jesus died, when he was still with them in glorified form, isn't that an interesting phrase, while I was still with you? He's he's with them right now. But he means in, in your way, in your unglorified standing in physical form. When I was with you, while I was still with you, I said that everything must be fulfilled. He himself had prophesied that the Romans would crucify him and that on the third day he would rise again. But Jesus refers specifically here to the prophecies of the prophets who had lived centuries before Him. He includes the entire Hebrew Bible. Prophecies concerning Jesus' death and resurrection and the witness of His followers is found in the law, in the first five books of the Bible, in the prophets, in the Psalms, probably standing for all of the books of poetry. They prophesied aspects of Christ's life and ministry and prepared God's people for Jesus' death and resurrection. Notice back in verse 25, at this earlier appearance to those on the road to Emmaus, verse 25, he said, "'How foolish you are and how slow to, of heart "'to believe all that the prophets have spoken.'" Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. He repeats this point over and over. And in verse 45, He opens their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. This is the light. These are those stars that illumined the dark night of salvation history for so long. These evidences were there all along the way, hundreds and hundreds of years sometimes between them. But these prophecies were there, and all of Scripture at all times pointing to Christ, to His work He opens their eyes to understand the Bible as they had never understood it before and would always understand it from this point. Specifically, these prophecies point to His suffering, and they point to His death, and they point to His victorious resurrection. Verse 46, He told them, This is what is written. What does He mean there? This is what's in the Old Testament prophets. This is what the scriptures have prepared us to see. This is what is written, he says. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This is what is written, he will suffer and die. The death of Jesus was not a tragic derailment of God's redemptive plan. God himself ordained the death and he ordained the resurrection of Jesus, and the disciples could now look back at the passages of the Old Testament that revealed this point, and they could see it was there all along. In less than two months, Peter will stand in Jerusalem and preach Psalm 16, among other passages, as a prophecy of Christ's resurrection, Acts 2. A bit later, Philip will preach from Isaiah 53 as a prophecy of Christ's crucifixion, Acts chapter 8. And throughout all of Scripture, there are evidences and preparation for these events. You know that I am here before you in physical form, but you also know that God has planned this from eternity. There's a third point here, though prophecies concerning his death prophecies concerning his resurrection but there's a third infinitive that we find here that ties the three together and that is prophecies concerning the proclamation of his death and resurrection verse 47 say i'll just pick up the phrase there in verse 46 or the the sentence, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The preaching of Jesus' resurrection was also prophesied in the Old Testament. Verse 47, not only does the Old Testament prophesy the death and resurrection, but the proclamation. It is a summary term here, the repentance and forgiveness of sins, a summary term for the proclamation of the gospel. The repentant sinner experiences a fundamental change in perspective about who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, and how we relate to God. This is a summary term of acceptance of the gospel message. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. Not simply in Jerusalem, not simply at this time, but to all nations throughout the world, this message of repentance. A change in perspective of concerning who God is. Seen as creator and judge of the universe, as Savior to whom we are accountable. A change in perspective as to who I am, a sinner destined for hell. And a change in how we relate to God. We relate to Him only through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This message of change, this message of repentance and forgiveness will be proclaimed to all nations. That was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's all been there all along. Acts chapter 10 through 28 tell the story of this proclamation. As they move from Jerusalem to Rome, and as we continue to move to the farthest reaches of the globe today with this gospel of Christ crucified and risen, the Old Testament prophets, I mean, it it can make you tingle when you think about it. They prophesied this all along. They prophesied that we would be proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ to the far reaches of the globe, to all nations and tribes and tongues. Christ crucified and risen would be proclaimed. There were songs that we sung this morning, if you caught them. I, they, they, just, they fill me with joy in the thought that it will be all people's. Wouldn't it be a dull faith to have a faith that was just connected to your particular nation, your particular ethnic group? What a dull faith that would be. How unglorious it would be. The Creator of all people will draw out of all nations and tongues and tribes people to His name and we will praise His name together as one race, redeemed through all eternity by the Lord Jesus Christ. We as Gentiles with the Jews united finally as God's people together in eternity in a sinless realm, proclaiming the salvation of Jesus Christ. And it is on that point that Jesus now commences as He teaches His disciples. He commissions them to bear witness to His resurrection, to fulfill the prophetic word, to be part of this army of witnesses that go throughout the world. It's so crucial they understand that He really is alive. And it's so crucial that they understand that they are part of salvation's plan. Verse 48, He says, you are witnesses of these things. You are the witnesses of what the prophets have declared. Think about where these disciples are right now. They are barricaded behind a locked door out of fear. Jesus is telling them that the Old Testament prophecies indicate that they are going to unlock the door. They're going to walk through that door, and they're going to go out into the world to proclaim the salvation of Jesus Christ. They will witness Christ's death and resurrection to the world. Clearly, Jesus is working here. Ever the teacher, ever the discipler. He is preparing them for the future. They were not going to be mere observers of a great story. They weren't going to go around now into Jerusalem and find the best publicist to describe their story, their account, and to write a book about what they had experienced. That isn't the way it's going to happen here. Jesus says, no, you are an integral part of the story. And Christians, so are we. For two and a half years, we have observed the life of Jesus of Nazareth together as a church. It's been two and a half years on this journey through Luke. And what a desperate tragedy it would be If we got to the end of this study and we responded as if we had watched a movie, as if we had just listened to a story, just interested, just engaged to consider this great story, what a tragedy that would be. Wow, that was really good. That was really interesting. I've learned some things about the life of Jesus. I've been encouraged, in fact, to worship Him. It was a great story. No, that's not where it needs to end. It needs to end this journey through the Gospel of Luke right where the Gospel ends. You are witnesses of these things. You are. He's speaking, of course, directly to these disciples, but let me tell you, these disciples, if they walked from this moment for the rest of their lives, would never reach the other end of the earth. This clearly is intended for disciples beyond these specific disciples. With the communication of that day, with the travel abilities of that day, they could never possibly, humanly speaking, ever get to the other end of the earth just to get there, let alone to preach Christ and establish churches along the way. We are with them witnesses of these things. God has called us to actively carry forward the message of Christ crucified and risen to a needy world. That's a scary thought. It's a wonderful thought. When you think of it, it means that we are part of the prophetic way. The prophets have declared that we will proclaim the gospel of Christ to all nations. We will be part of those people who will do that. That's an exciting thought, but it's also a frightening thought. How do I go in to this world, and proclaim the risen Christ. What a strange message it is. How do I do that? How am I equipped to do that? Here's these individuals, these disciples, cowering in fear behind closed doors. Jesus doesn't vanish from their sight and leave them to their fears. Verse 49, He says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. He's referring to the Holy Spirit of God, which we read about earlier this morning in chapter 1 of Acts. You are not ready yet, says Jesus. You're not ready yet. You're not equipped, but you will be. He tells them to wait because he knows they will be hopelessly disadvantaged without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Who are we to think that we can witness in our own strength and power if these apostles could not do it? We too must have the Holy Spirit. What it means that the Spirit will come in power will be fleshed out in the second chapter of Acts and throughout the remainder of the New Testament. But for now they must wait. Soon these uneducated, think of it, these uneducated, fearful disciples would begin to turn the world upside down. They would fearlessly storm the gates of hell after the Spirit came. What a great prospect it is. What a great encouragement it is for us as well that we can go into this world fearlessly because of the presence of the Spirit of God in our hearts to proclaim this message of Christ crucified and to join the prophetic stream, to join salvation history by declaring Christ crucified and risen to lost souls. This is our privilege. We are His witnesses as well. Leon Morris notes that Luke's Gospel is longer than the standard papyrus roll used by authors in the ancient world. It was expensive to purchase such a roll, and to write out a book of this length was quite an undertaking. And his book is longer than would typically fit on such a parchment, and it appears that Luke is forced to end his work rather abruptly for that reason. He does the same thing with Acts, which gives me a little courage. Here's another preacher that always runs out of time to say it all. But you look where Acts ends. Acts just drops off the edge of a cliff. It's just over all of a sudden. It doesn't really close very well, just with a final phrase. And Luke does the same with his book here. Showing Jesus blessing his disciples and ascending to heaven. At verse 50, When He had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, He lifted up His hands and He blessed them. Bethany again on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Lifting His hands, he is blessing them. And it's a symbolic, formal departure. And for all that we know, it would appear here that Luke has telescoped the situation that 40 days of appearances have taken place. Some would argue that this took place as is indicated here right on that Sunday of Resurrection Sunday. But most likely there are the 40 days, the post-resurrection appearances that do take place, as we find in Acts chapter 1, Luke's next book, as he talks about it there. That's probably what is taking place here. He's in the vicinity of Bethany. He is on the Mount of Olives, and it is from here that He departs. Verse 51, while He was blessing them, He left them and was taken up into heaven. As prophesied in Psalm 68 and stated in Mark 16, 19, Jesus ascends to His Father's throne where He still waits until His enemies are finally subdued. Psalm 110 and verse 1. It's from here that Jesus will soon pour out the Spirit upon His followers to empower them to witness the gospel. And it is important here again to stress that Jesus Christ ascends into heaven in bodily form. He rises from the dead in bodily form, and He leaves in bodily form. The beauty of this truth is that this ascension prophesies the resurrection and meeting of God in heaven for all who are united to Christ. We will be in the presence of God in bodily form. There's great comfort in that. We will not go on as some disembodied spirit floating around eternity forever, but we will come in physical form to stand before the Father as Jesus did He leaves in bodily form. The head of the church will bring His members with Him. Verse 52, they respond as only they could. They worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. He's gone. The last time that He was gone, they were weeping. They were in fear behind locked doors. Now He's gone and they leave with joy. Something's changed. They know that He's forever alive, and they know that they will come with Him into His presence. They know, in fact, that He will return. And they stayed, writes Luke, as he, I suppose, squishes the writing to the end of the parchment. They stayed continually at the temple praising God. That's right where he's going to pick up the account in the book of Acts. But what a different group of disciples it was now, fearlessly going on to enemy turf. Fearlessly going where they had been afraid to go before and facing the people that they were afraid would kill them and in some events did kill them. It didn't matter now. Death was gone. Death was dead. Death was defeated by Jesus Christ. They had no more fear of death. They would proclaim the risen Christ anywhere and to anyone as God gave them opportunity. And there is, as we close out this book, and look primarily at this section, great hope here, isn't there? This is a final period on the Word. All things work together for good to those who love God. That's not light sentimentality. We're talking about a man dying. We're talking about followers who gave their life, who died to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the midst of all the death and the torture and the difficulty and the heartache, it all comes back to the truth that all things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God is never done until He's glorified. And there are trials that we face in our lives. There are difficulties which we go through. There are trials that the church of Jesus faces today that are deep and hard and difficult. But this is where our hope is lodged. Jesus rose from the dead, and He has ascended to the right hand of the Father today. That's where our hope lies. Whatever trial, whatever difficulty, however sin damages and harms our life, Whether that be through illness and disease, the result of sin, or through the sins of others against us, or through the sins of our own corrupt heart that brings misery down upon our life, this is going to end well for those who know Him. There's hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will someday stand before Him, sinless, because of the work that He has done. All things work together for good. These individuals so crushed, so hurt, so despondent are now filled with joy because Jesus beat death. That is our great enemy. Satan and death have been defeated by Jesus Christ. There is hope in every situation in the end. We must persevere, we must trust, we must hang on in faith to the end. But there is hope at the end of it all. God will have the last word. And we can rest in that. There is a word here certainly concerning the salvation of our souls. Those who do not know Christ as personal Savior have in Jesus an offer. Find in Him an offer. Find in Him the truth that He has died to pay the penalty of sin and He has risen in victory over death. If you have not come to embrace that truth, I call you to trust in the Gospel of Jesus Christ today. You need to have Him forgive your sin. Call upon Him and seek Him. Come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He does live. He did conquer death and hell. He does provide forgiveness for those who repent. Change your mind about Jesus Christ. Change your heart and turn to Him in saving faith today. What a tragedy it would be to hear all about the life of Jesus Christ through this long series of sermons and to walk away not knowing Him. Not being saved by Him. God's people, will you pray, should there be someone in our midst who knows not Christ as Savior, May we pray that their eyes would be opened, that He is the Lord. Receive Him in faith. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, isn't it a wonderful truth to consider we are part of this story? We are part of this story. You are a participant in God's plan to proclaim the gospel throughout the world. The book of Luke is not a biography for us to merely enjoy. The life of Jesus is our life. This story is who we are. And our joy as worshipers of this risen Christ is to bear witness to the saving power of the Gospel, first in our own lives and then to bear witness of it to others. We are witnesses of these things. Not because we were literally there, but because the indwelling Spirit of God empowers us to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus with authority, just as He empowered us the disciples that were here as Jesus appears to them. We have the same spirit. We have the same commission. We have the same Savior, the same authority, the same message. In one sense, it doesn't matter that we weren't there. In another sense, we were. In faith, we were crucified, and we we have been crucified, and we have risen with the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. And so we are witnesses Like His disciples, we gather in His name to worship Him until this risen Lord comes physically to earth or takes us home, and He will. This book of Luke started with people waiting for Jesus to come. You remember them in the temple area, waiting for Messiah to come. That's where it started, and that's where it will end with people waiting for His Spirit to empower them and to labor until He comes again. At this last Passover meal, at at His last Passover meal, Jesus said what? I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I will eat it. In physical, risen form, Jesus Christ will eat again. In the kingdom of God, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And it will come. In all its fullness, in God's time, Jesus will return. Though never seeing him, we still love him. We look to that day with great hope when the faith will be sight and all tears will be wiped away, and we live in the brilliant light of God's glory in the land that is ruled by Jesus. And no cloud will ever darken that sky again. For now our task is simple. It is to worship and it is to witness. It is to gather together as God's people to lift up and exalt the name of the risen Christ. And that is what we do and what we strive to do in this assembly. We do not gather together to sing because we like music. We do not gather here to sing as a preliminary to move bodies and get people to do things as a way of kind of adding some elevator music to our gathering here to just make it comfortable. We gather here on the Lord's day to sing with serious joy. With serious joy. This is no myth. This is the risen Christ that we gather to exalt and to honor in song, and in prayer, and in the Word. And as we exhort one another, we are here each Lord's Day to witness Jesus Christ. And we go out from this place to witness that truth to others. To that weak believer who needs to be strengthened in the faith, and to that unbeliever who needs to hear the call of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to know what Christ has done. To know that He died to pay the penalty of sin, and to know that He rose from the dead in victory. There are people in your life who need to hear that truth. They need to hear it winsomely. They need to hear it in a way that is beautiful and right and good, but they need to hear it. There are people who need to know that Christ died and rose from the dead, and that salvation is found alone in His name. We are worshipers and we are witnesses. Can I say it this way if you give me a little rope? Everything else is just details. This is who we are. And this is who we will be throughout all eternity, the worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in one eternal song service, but we will worship him in song and in word and in work to carry out the purposes of His kingdom throughout all eternity. We are at the core of our being in Jesus Christ, worshipers and witnesses. May we leave these doors today after this series and after this particular passage of Scripture. May we leave this place changed. May we leave this place as representatives of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask to this end that you will empower us by your Spirit to do just that, to do what we find unnatural, to do what we know in the end is utterly impossible, to proclaim in any winsome, saving way the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'll fill us with joy and that that joy would overflow in our hearts and in our souls to be the faithful witnesses that we should be. God, how we know how often has been the case in our life, how many times we have shared the message of Christ crucified in such a way that is poor and unwinsome and sometimes even just purely inaccurate. God, forgive us. Lord, there's other times we've not shared the faith at all because of fear of ourselves and what we will fail to do and how far short we fall and perhaps even fear that we will be discredited or disliked, forgive us of our sin. God empower us to proclaim this truth of Christ crucified and risen faithfully and powerfully and joyfully. May we risk whatever we need to risk, death itself, to take this message. And may you from this church send out that light to other places in this dark world, that we might proclaim Christ crucified and risen for the joy of our own hearts and the joy of those who come to trust Him and sing His praises. Remind us that we are above all worshipers and witnesses, that everything else are the details of life. Help us, God, to this end and change us. Draw anyone who knows you not as Savior, I pray this day, into the light of your saving grace. Through Christ we pray. Amen.